You guys, welcome to episode 28 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives on the well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. I am your host, Troy McGeady, and um, as you can probably tell from my crack voice, I'm still sick. I'm still fucking sick. I'm still coughing. I'm still coughing up phlegm and just like having weird, weird colored liquids leave my body. I don't know what to do anymore. Am I just like a forever sick? Like, I don't know. I don't understand. This is like never really happened to me. Um, like sick to the point that like literally a couple minutes ago, I sat down to record this and I looked to me left and I saw a stray cough drop that must have like fallen from my grip in the past couple days is all I've done is walk around with a bag of, of like lozenges, like a goddamn 90 year old. And I saw like a fallen soldier and like literally like dove to the ground to pick it up. Like it was my goddamn precious. I'm not even kidding. Cause right now cough drops mean more to me than like anything. And um, especially at this moment when I'm recording this episode and I like ripped it open. Like I was like a fucking leprechaun that found like a pot of gold. Like it was the most important and prized possession of my life was like a stray cold cough drop that had been like propped up against like the, the wall near my window. So like was ice cold and the paper was stuck to it. But like, for me, that was like finding expensive jewelry. So that's where I am in life. Um, oh, I'm also recording from a new room in my apartment. I think I like this one. I'm in my bedroom and I'm like trying this for the first time. I think I like it. The sound isn't terrible. Um, you can't hear traffic, so that's good. Um, but yeah, I'm just gonna apologize in advance for coughing and gagging again because I can't help it. And I wish I had my normal voice back because I have to like strain to like get this out. And I feel like I sound, I sound like I'm like prepubescent or something. Like I feel like I sound like I'm going through puberty. Like I'm trying to like not make my voice crack or something. You know what I mean? Um, but I'll also have you know that I, I broke my own record today with this episode. Um, I took the most notes today that I've ever taken in 28 weeks of this podcast. And I really thought that I had, I thought that I had like really outdone it. Like I thought that I had gone too far so many times and I realized today that I really officially have gone like too fucking far. Um, I took like almost 20 pages of notes today. Well, about today's episode, which is, it's nothing to like, it's not admirable. It's like, it's insane. Like I really do have a problem. It's not like something to like be praised about. I don't deserve a pat on the back. I don't deserve any sort of like admiration. I'm insane. It's like not normal. You know what I mean? It's like, get a life. But this is what I do for you. <laughs> I sit and take 20 pages of notes about Hillary Duff and Joel Madden. You guys, like legit can we talk? I'm not even kidding. Like I, first of all, I don't know what took me so long. Like what took me so long to want to talk about them? 28 weeks? That's far too long. This is a fucking crazy relationship, first of all. I completely forgot that she was a baby girl when they dated and that he was, you know, one of those guys in the early 2000s, along with so many other men that dated teenage girls that were in the industry. And we're going to get into it, but this was like a time of that for some reason, just like being acceptable. Like it was just fine to be like approaching 30 or in your 30s and have like a 15 year old girlfriend. It was just like of the time which is so fucking weird and gross. Um, 
But this relationship, I don't know. I, I was obsessed with them. I loved Hilary Duff my whole life. Um, I grew up watching Lizzie McGuire. Like, she's of my exact sort of generation, age range. Like, you know, I was the exact age of a child that was supposed to be brainwashed by Lizzie McGuire. And, like, I don't know. I've just always found Hillary to be really interesting. And it's. I think it's fascinating the way she's been able to sort of, like, navigate her career. And, like, the control she's had over her image her entire life. And um, her sort of, like, no-nonsense, unapologetic good girl, um, persona that I will get into, but that I do believe is a persona. Like, I do believe that Hillary Duff plays, Hillary Duff has been playing a version of herself her entire life. And it makes me wonder what that does to a person's, like, psyche. Like, what it's like to be friends with Hillary Duff or to date Hillary Duff and to see this person who's so obsessive about what people think of her and, you know, having been so sort of brainwashed by Disney to appear a certain way. And I do think that that's sort of trickled into her adult life. And, um, it's a weird thing. She, you know, she's a, she's a tough nut to crack. You know, I think she's fascinating. She's gorgeous. I think she's fucking hysterical. Um, she can't sing for shit, but I love the sound of her voice. I love that, like, studio edited, like, perfectly, um, perfectly mixed like Hillary Duff studio voice as just like is literal music to my ears. I love Hillary Duff's music. And yeah, I'm excited to get to talk about her today. Um believe it or not, not a huge Joel Madden fan, not a huge Good Charlotte fan. Didn't grow up listening to Good Charlotte. Just to throw that just, you know, throw that out there. I just want you to know if you're a Good Charlotte head, this will not be like this won't be the episode where you get what you've wanted your whole life, unfortunately, but I will give you a little bit of something, you know? I did my research. I did a lot of research about Good Charlotte, you know? And this this podcast has taken me on journeys that I never saw for myself years ago. Like, who would have ever thought that I'd be sitting in a room taking 20 pages of notes about Good Charlotte? I mean, can you imagine? But I did it for you. So, Good Charlotte heads... <laughs> <laughs> today's your day. Um, but yeah, I guess we should get right into it. Uh, so Hillary Duff and Joel Madden dated from July of 2004 to November of 2006. And as I mentioned earlier, Hillary was very famously 16 years old when they started dating. Um, Joel was 24. He was turning 25. And this was a super transitional time for both of them. Hillary was attempting to sort of at the time, they cross over and be taken seriously as this, like, punk pop recording artist and, you know, serious actress. And, um, you know, Joel was helping her with her music at the time to kind of give her, like, a more hard edge. Um, which is ironic because when they broke up, you know, he had helped her with her album, like, sort of right before they broke up. And then after they broke up, she had a bunch of, like, diss tracks on her album about him and Nicole Richie, which we'll definitely get to, but, like, they're diss tracks in the world of Hillary Duff, so they're, like, they're silly and fun and, and like, cute. Um, and Hillary is very open about the fact that when she turned 19, um, she very unapologetically, like, cut almost everybody she knew out of her life, all of the negative influences, um, in order to maintain this sort of squeaky clean image that she'd worked her entire life to build and maintain. And I suppose Joel was probably a part of that, cleanse um and when she talks about that i mean it's crazy like 
not to skip too far ahead, but it's just crazy to listen to a person verbally say, I cut everybody out of my life because I had an image to maintain. Like, she unapologetically befriended her friends because she wanted to maintain the Hillary Duff image. Which I guess, like, if you have a million people swarming you and, like, trying to, like, pull you into that Lindsay Lohan, like, sort of dark, um, dark, uh, sort of part of Hollywood, you know what I mean? It's, like, cool that she had so much gall and, like, she had the balls to be like, fuck all of you, I'm not gonna become this, like, washed up, coke addict, crazy, like, sex crazed, trying to, like you know, be a bad girl on TV to, like, rebel against Disney. It's just not gonna happen. Like, she was... She knew what she wanted. She knew what she wanted us to think of her. She knew what she wanted for her life and her career, and she got it, and she's still getting it. I mean, Hilary Duff has, throughout the years, maintained this perfect image of being a private, good, sweet girl. And it's crazy that we've known her for... I mean, what now, like 15, 16, 17 years? And there's nothing that negative that you can say about Hillary Duff. She's had her moments of being bitchy. She had her little, like, Lindsay Lohan feud. And the fact that her feud with Lindsay Lohan when they were still Disney stars is, like, one of the things that always comes up as being, like, you know, a wild time for Hillary Duff. Like, that's crazy. Because for Lindsay, that was a real starting off point, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> like, that was literal child's play for Lindsay Lohan in comparison to what she got into. And for Hillary, that was like the biggest smudge in her career ever. I mean, of all, of all the things she's done and all the, all of the years we've known her, her feud with Lindsay Lohan over Aaron Carter when they were like four years old is the darkest thing that you can pull up about her on the internet. It's amazing. Um, so we should, I mean, I'm, I'm clearly very excited to talk about Hillary Dove, so I think we should just, like, get right the fuck into her. Um, so Hillary comes from one of those, like, this is our dream and our parents just pushed us type families, but, like, she and her sister were encouraged heavily by her mother to pursue acting and singing and dancing and everything, and one of those, like, this is your dream, sweetie, we're just supporting you, but, like, you're also six, kind of, it's, like, so... What dreams do you really have beyond just, like, eating today? Because you're six years old. Um, and in a very Lynn Spears move, her mother packed up the girls and moved them out to California. Her father stayed behind. They grew up in Texas. And her father stayed behind to run their family convenience stores. They had, like, a whole chain of convenience stores in the town that they grew up in. And their dad stayed behind to finish the family business because who knew? Who who knows? You know what I mean? Who would have known that if they would have gone up to Hollywood and made it, they would have maybe needed to come back home and work at the goddamn store with their dad. You know what I mean? So he stayed back and sold uh, sold packs of Marb Lights to people in, in their small town in Texas. And, like, here's the thing. Like, I think about my mother's reaction, like, what it would be if I came to her at, like, age eight and said, like, can you unenroll un me from school so I can, like, be a movie star, please? I know I'm eight years old, but it's my dream. Can you help me follow it? Like, can you pull me from third grade, please? <laughs> like, even, like, as a teen mom, I think my mom would have been like, um, you're a fucking idiot. Like, your brain is not fully developed. You don't even have a frontal lobe. You can't make rational thoughts. And, like, you know... Not judging, because everybody... I mean, everything obviously worked out for them in the end, but, like, Jesus Christ, like... 
the mind of a stage mom is one of the most interesting things. Like that is a, a resource that we're not tapping into enough. We need like stage mom reality shows. We need stage mom Netflix series. Like we need more stage mom centric entertainment on television because I just need to understand the thought process of a woman who looks at her five-year-old and thinks like a star. Um, so Hillary was cast in an NBC pilot in the year 2000 called Daddy-O, and it starred Michael Chiklis. Um, this was meant to be her big sort of breakout, her big breakout role after she got, you know, she had made it a little bit. She'd done some commercials, and this was, like, going to be her thing. She'd also done some guest spots on TV shows, like, shows like Law and & Order and, like, things like that, where, like, you know, kid number eight that, like, ran past the screen. Like, that was, like, what she was doing for the most part. A lot of uncredited roles. And um, after being dropped from the show, she landed the role of Lizzie McGuire on the Disney Channel, and uh, her entire life changed. Um, Lindsay turned Hillary into a household name. Literally overnight, she was immediately pushed into this the machine of, you know, being a Disney teen idol. Like, it was literally the following day, Hillary Duff was a name that every single teenager and child in this country knew. Um, and she was also extremely marketable and lucrative for Disney. And it was reported that Disney made $100 million in merchandise alone from Lindsay McGuire. $100 million only in merchandise. So, like, fucking lunchboxes and Purell. $100 million. Hillary Duff was a fucking giant money-making machine. And you can actually still... I mean, they still profit from Lizzie McGuire. Like, you can still buy Lizzie McGuire products at some stores, and, sorry, and you can, um, she actually has, like, a, a line of, like, books, like, there's a Lizzie McGuire series that you can still read that I guess has continued for 12 years or whatever, um, and I guess kids still read it, which I had no idea. I have to get into that. Um, and it was decided very early on in Hillary's career that she was gonna be marketed as Disney's good girl, you know, she was the like I said earlier, she was the not Lindsay Lohan. And the interesting thing about Hillary is that she seemed to really enjoy leaning into being put on this pedestal of being like a role model and a good girl and perfect. Whereas like most girls in her position end up trying to rebel in some way, a la like, you know, Miley Cyrus or Bella Thorne or whatever. Like basically every girl that's ever been a part of the Disney machine. Um, Hillary always sort of owned it, and she welcomed the idea that there was no separation between her Disney image and her real-life persona, and that, you know, she was, in a sense, Lizzie McGuire. Maybe not 100%, but for the most part, she was a very sweet, good girl that didn't do anything wrong, and was just full of witty little quips, and a beautiful smile, and perfectly flat-ironed blonde hair. Like, that was her in a nutshell. And I read this quote from Shia LaBeouf when I was doing research for this episode where he said that you basically have to be careful when you work for Disney because before you know it, like, you can become a pop star without realizing it. Because it is a requirement that if you are a Disney kid, like, you are eventually going to need to sing, you know? You're going to be put on some album or some soundtrack or you'll sing your theme song or something. And, you know, God forbid you don't want to. And an executive hears you sing and likes it because that could end up being like a 12 year long music career for you that you don't even want. You can literally just all of a sudden become 
a mega pop star with no singing ability, no desire or passion for it because they just decide that it would be right for you to be a pop star. And I wouldn't say that that was like the case for Hillary. I'm sure she was super into the idea of becoming a recording artist. Obviously it was something that she continued after, you know, years after being in the Disney machine, but it just sort of puts it into perspective. Like, God forbid you like sing a note clearly enough that some guy's like, oh yeah, you could be a pop star. Let's do it. And then you're just like some fucking mega superstar pop star. Like it's insane. And you know, it's like obviously what they normally do is feature you on something and then they progressively work you into becoming the pop artist. And Hillary was featured on several Disney Channel albums and she also sang on the Lizzie McGuire soundtrack and on a couple songs that, you know, it was, it wasn't Hillary's technique. Like, I guess Disney considers this to be Hillary's first album, which I think is weird. Um, her first album is the Lizzie McGuire soundtrack, but I just don't. Like, when I was researching her, I was like, okay, so she did the Lizzie McGuire soundtrack, and then she released an album that was, like, her... It was called Metamorphosis, obviously, and it was her, like, singing songs that she recorded for herself as Hilary Duff. Um, but her brand was so... It was like a Hannah Montana thing. Like, Miley Cyrus doesn't consider herself to have 12 albums. You know what I mean? Like, but Hilary Duff does. <laughs> That's so funny, but, like, Hilary Duff considers her Lizzie McGuire music to be, like, her first music. Like, which it is technically, but do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's just funny, because, like, it was, like, Lizzie McGuire shit and, like, Zack and Cody soundtrack, but she's, like, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so, like, Molly and I have talked a lot on this podcast about the comparisons made between female pop artists, especially during the whole Summer of Simpson, and... Especially at this time, like, I would say that there were these girls that were sort of like, if this was all like a big spider graph, there were girls at the very center of the spider graph that sort of um, helped progress the culture and, you know, they were sort of like the biggest artists in the industry. And then there was like the girls that sort of spidered off of them, if that makes sense, but they were still sort of connected to other girls in their influence. And Avril, I think, was like, a really big part of the spider graph at that time, like being a really big and like integral center piece of the spider graph. Cause there were so many, um, sort of like pop punk female artists that were trying to do what she was doing in their own way. Like we've talked about how, you know, like Ashley Simpson was like the sort of SoCal California pack sun version of Avril. And then, you know, there were a bunch of girls like that. And then you had Hillary who, you know, and like, like, middle school, when you learned how to make a spider graph, but, like, you weren't good at it yet. So, you would spider things off of each other to the point where, like, something would end up on the very edge of the piece of paper, where you had to, like, just write it in, in, like, a, a, the edge of, like, a corner with, like, the tip of your pencil, and it was illegible. To me, that's, like, where Hillary was on the spider graph of Avril, if that makes sense. Like... She definitely spidered off of Avril, but she was so far off onto the edge of the paper that she was, like, her name was not fully legible on that piece of paper. Like, you know what I mean? She definitely, definitely was influenced by Avril Lavigne. She definitely was somebody who wanted to be a part of that sort of, um, of that, like, sort of music genre of, like, a pop-punk princess. 
you know, but she was the Disney version of a pop pop punk princess. And that's a fucking tongue twist there. Um, And a successful one. I mean, it's not like, I'm not saying that to say that she wasn't successful. She was like a crazy, hugely successful recording artist and her album sold millions of copies. But I mean, just like aesthetic wise, you know, like in the sense of what she was able to accomplish as far as like the way we viewed her, like nobody was looking at Avril and thinking like, uh oh, better watch out, Hill Dog's coming. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> the only reminder is that she would be wearing like a, a a plaid like patchwork skirt, and you'd be like, oh yeah, or like a fingerless glove, and you'd be like, oh yeah, she's like she thinks she's like pop punk or whatever. I forgot. You know what I mean? While she's singing, why not? Um, and this makes me laugh really hard. Hillary described her album Metaphor- Metamorphosis when it came out as somewhere between pop and hardcore rock and roll, but said, quote, she couldn't really explain it. I don't know why I think that's so funny. (laughs) First of all, it's a mix between pop and hardcore, rock and roll, but I can't really explain it. It's like, okay. (laughs) Okay, baby girl, whatever you say, okay? Um, And this album was obviously very clearly recorded with the intention to appeal to a mass number of queens. Uh, You know, many of the producers who worked on the album also worked on Avril's, and they were all brought in to sort of help shape you know, her, her image as far as being somebody who was being introduced into the music industry. And in a 2005 article, um, this interview that she did with the Chicago, Chicago Sun Times, she talked about what little input she had on the album and said that she was, you know, basically under the control of the record label and she still had Disney breathing down her neck. So she, it was very limited as far as what she could say or do or whatever. Um, and she said, if I could change it, I would, and it would sound less pop. My name is Hilary Duff, and I don't know why I don't get to make Hilary Duff music. Uh, But the album peaked at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200, and it was certified platinum during its third month. Like I said, it was, I mean, her music was hugely successful. And here's the thing, like, her first real album, this was her first real album. And it was obviously marketed towards kids, but the impact of this album had... I mean, culturally, whether you were a tween or not, it cannot be denied. Like, don't act like you don't know So Yesterday. Um, Don't act like you don't know Come Clean. If you're listening to this podcast, you fucking know Come Clean. Every person who grew up in America who didn't grow up like fucking Jodie Foster in Nell in the woods, like signing all of her words, you've seen Laguna Beach and you know come clean and the impact that that song had on all of us. I mean, like I was a teenager at this time. I wasn't, you know, um, nine. I was like 15 or 16 or whatever. And like all of my friends listened to Hillary Duff. You know what I mean? And I don't know if that was because we grew up watching Hillary Duff and we grew up watching Lizzie McGuire and it just felt like a natural transition to sort of like then listen to her music and it's not like any of us took it seriously. I mean, I wasn't listening to it thinking like, wow, Joni Mitchell is like scared right now. But like, I definitely, I don't know. I just, everybody listened to Hillary Duff. Like, right? Am I crazy or am I crazy? Like, we all listened to Hillary Duff and we knew she was marketed for children, but we still listened to her all the time. Anyway... Lizzie McGuire aired its finale 
on February 14th of 2004, which freed her to star in, and they had also done the Lizzie McGuire film, which was widely successful, and this freed her to star in, like, non-Lizzie-centric Disney movies to expand her fan base. She was still a Disney queen, but she was doing, like, non-Lizzie McGuire stuff. She was ready to, like, break out. So what's the first thing she does? A Cinderella story. Because (laughs) what better way to show people you're growing up and leaving your childhood behind than to star in the teen film A Cinderella Story, which wasn't a huge box office hit, but acquired a weird sort of like teen cult following. Like I knew so many people who loved A Cinderella Story. Um, It also also earned her a Razzie nomination for Worst Actress, Praying For You. Um, She also starred in Raise Your Voice in The Perfect Man. And then she released uh, what would technically be considered her third studio album, if you count the Lizzie albums or whatever, which was self-titled. And that album was released a few days after her 17th birthday. Um, it was released with the intention of separating her from Lizzie McGuire. This was really where she, like, really totally leaned into her Avril Ashley Simpson thing. And this is where, like, Hilary Duff to me, is, like, very unique in the sense that she never went through a phase of, like, acting out, like I said earlier. Like, publicly, to be taken seriously as an adult, she does fall heavily into the cliches of trying to present, like, a more adult version of herself. So, like, that part of, like, you know, being a Disney star, she still wasn't able to really escape from, of, like, you know, talking about every one of her albums as if it was, like, this new look into, like, her soul... You know what I mean? (laughs) And always describing each one as, like, more edgy, more funk, more rock and roll inspired, more hip-hop. Like, okay. Blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, you trying to sound like Avril Lavigne, which is fine. I mean, I love it. Again, I love Hilary Duff's music. Um, the press was never really kind to Hilary Duff about her music. She wasn't, like, a, like, a, 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 a press darling, if you will, um, But like I said, she sold shit tons of albums. Like, she was selling millions and millions of albums. And it was no... There was no denying the fact that, like, she was marketable no matter what she did. Whether she was still doing Lizzie McGuire or not. Like, people were going to support Hilary Duff and follow Hilary Duff. And the kids that had grown up with her, like, we weren't... She wasn't going to become... She wasn't going to be abandoned. You know what I mean? Hilary Duff was still Hilary Duff. Um... And in March of 2004, Hillary released her clothing line, sold exclusively through Target in, in the United States, called Stuff by Hillary Duff. And uh, the guy who oversaw, well, the company uh, who oversaw the designs and the brand and the marketing and everything, aka the person who was actually like running the company, um, it was a company called Robert, Robert Thorne, which obviously is like a person, but also like this big giant sort of like juggernaut company that helps brands like make it in department stores and he actually oversaw um, Mary Kate and Ashley's clothing line for Kmart and he ran their dual star production company as well so like most like teen you know sort of Disney driven fashion brands like it started off focused on like clothing it was like a clothing line and it quickly turned into one of those companies that has its name on like literally anything and everything you can imagine. So like, you know, furniture, um, makeup, plates and cups, uh, hand sanitizers, keypads, 
table runners, like curtain rods. Like literally you can go to fucking Target and everything in the kids section just has Hillary Duff's picture on it. She has no idea that she's selling toilet seat covers and like fucking walkie talkies and sippy cups and like, oh, hi, what up, puberty? Sippy cups and like reusable straws, like all this weird shit. Um, you get the idea though. It was one of those, just one of those companies that just like sold everything, like anything that a child could possibly desire. They were like, we have that for you, little girl. Um, and it was reported that Hillary's line grossed over $5 million in its first year. So it was super successful. Um, another interesting thing about her line was that, okay, so it was debuted on this website called, called Stardoll. And like, I don't know if any of you, are familiar, but let me just sort of jog your memory and see if uh, this brings back anything for you. So, okay, um, please tell me that you remember paper dolls. Please don't leave me hanging. Like, tell me that you remember paper dolls. Like in middle school and in high school, I guess high school for some, because uh, whatever. But you would make these, like, paper dolls, like, you print them off online, and girls would, like, name them, like, they would, like, I don't, I don't know, at least at my school, this was, like, this was the trend at my school, so, like, girls would go on, like, stardoll.com and, like, these websites, and they would print off paper dolls, okay, and a paper doll was basically a little tiny sort of, like, pixelated image of, like, a Bratz doll, like, it looked like a slutty Barbie, and it would be wearing, like, really trendy, like, early 2000s clothes. Like, super low-rise jeans and, like, you know, just, like, trucker caps and, and like, be blowing bubbles and shit with bubble gum. And, like, at my school, the girls would print them off and then write the names of their best friends that looked like each paper doll, like, underneath the doll. As if they were, like, carrying their friendships with them all day. And then they would put it in their binder so, like, they would all have, like, a binder of paper dolls. It became, like, this thing. Um, so, on Star Doll, and I was always, like, secretly very envious and, like, wanted to, like, print off my own paper dolls, but just have them all be, like, like different reiterations of, like, Britney. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but on Star Doll, you could actually place Hillary's clothes on these, like, paper dolls. Like... I just, like, for a minute would like for you to imagine, like, Selena Gomez or something marketing her clothing line like this. Imagine, like, uh, Ariana Grande or, like, Demi Lovato being, like, announcing on Twitter, like, girls, (laughs) it's finally here, girls, my clothing line on stardoll.com, you can, like, create paper Barbies, and that's how I'm introducing my clothing line into the world, like, it's so early 2000s and it's so insane that this was something that like was profitable and that made sense for people um but yeah you could test out hillary's clothes on these like cartoon dolls and like just play with them um but nothing or that i mean the the clothing line was super successful it it, i want to say it ended in 2008 i want to say so i mean she was well into like being an adult well not an adult but you know what i mean she was like a in uh, in in the spectrum of Hillary Duff, who's been working since she was uh, a fucking fetus, she was like a woman basically when this ended. It went on for years, and um, later on she ended up like she said that she like gotten 
sold the rights to the company because she was no longer involved in the design of the items. So, who knows? Maybe I'm just being an asshole and, and you know, Hillary Duff was, you know, in the factory watching every toilet seat cover go by and thinking and saying, like, that thread's off, tilt that one a little bit to the left, different shade of pink, you know what I mean? <laughs> who knows? Um, so yeah, and I guess now we should talk a little bit about Joel Madden. Um, straight guys, you could like wake up. I guess this is like your moment or whatever. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know who the market for, for Joel Madden is. Um, actually, you know, I do. I, I talk about that a little bit in my notes here. Um, so here's the thing. You probably know Joel Madden as like the, the, the second lead vocalist in the under, underground punk rock band that shaped all of our lives. Good Charlotte, JK. How the fuck else would you know him? And like, raise your hand if you were one of those people who took Good Charlotte seriously in middle school, because there were a lot of people who did. I'm not going to make fun. I took a lot of things seriously in middle school and high school that like, I look back and I'm like, oh, really? Like you thought that they were like punk rock stars? Like you, like, especially during like the early 2000s, like Warped Tour days, there were so many bands that I thought were like true fucking like, like Leonard Skinner level just, like, rock artists, you know what I mean? Just, like, fucking rock and roll artists, and I look back and realize that they were 17 and 18-year-old boys that had, like, you know, gotten their mom's credit card to go get some fucking hair dye, you know? Like, I really took them seriously, and that was a lot. I mean, that Joel Madden and Benji Madden mean a lot to a lot of people. I'm not gonna trivialize their influence on our culture. They were extremely successful for a, a, a certain amount of time, and I remember, like, I had several friends in high school who used to make fun of me because I liked, you know, like, pop music, you know what I mean? And I liked everything, but of course, like, my staple in life was, like, pop music. And they would, like, roast the fuck out of me because they, like, loved Good Charlotte, you know what I mean? And they were, like, they were, like, punk rock. And it's hilarious now because, like, you look back, and this was, like, during a time when, like, the music industry was so much less transparent than it is now. And it was so much harder for us to just pick up on, like, very obvious things. Or maybe because we were kids. I don't know. But, like, you look back and realize, like, like they're, they're all from the same family. You know what I mean? Like, they all... Good Charlotte, you know, they were on during the first segment of TRL. And Christina Aguilera was on during the second. And they would do the countdown together. Because you know what? They were all fucking pop artists together. You know what I mean? Like, they were no different than a BB Mac. Okay? They just had guitars and they wore etnies. Like, that was the only difference. And, you know, they held guitars and they and they had eyeliner on. Like, that was it. That was what made them different than a boy band. And, um... I mean, like, look. If you have a moment of free time, I would really suggest you go... Google image, some old pictures of Good Charlotte. Like, I really, like, beg of you to do so, because... You guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You gotta be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So, go to patreon.com slash ebpsychos. At that point, you will uh, be asked to donate, and then when you donate at this level, you'll get this podcast, you'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week. You'll get Liz Bentley's Feathers in My Hair, which is the Teen Mom podcast, um, you'll get me and Molly's, uh, Brittany and Kevin chaotic special. You'll get all the stuff that Molly does exclusively through Patreon. It's well worth it. And also, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, go to mollyandthepsychos.com. It'll take you straight to it. And, uh, all we do all day and all night is talk about reality TV. It's super fun. 
So, like I said, patreon.com slash ebpsychos and mollyandthepsychos.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.